Revelation 22, if you're visiting, there are sermon notes in the bulletin. We've been working through end times. I call this sermon final words, final words about Revelation, final words about end times, because that's exactly what it is. If you haven't been with us, know that when you come to Revelation chapter 22, and that's where you should be, Revelation 22, verses 6 to 21, right? 21? <laughs> yeah, 21. This is, this is where in the Bible, eternity has already been described. The, the judgments of the final tribulation have occurred. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bull judgments have all occurred. The thousand-year reign of Christ, I believe, which is a literal thousand years, has occurred. The final judgment, whether you're a believer or non-believer, has occurred. And the passage that we began reading for our scripture reading at 21.1 is when all of a sudden God now just says, I am going to describe what eternity looks like. This is the most complete picture of what eternity looks like. And it is a real earth that we're on. We're not floating in clouds. It's not some like esoteric state where we are not aware of uh, anything of substance. We're on a real earth and we're living with Jesus, I believe, at the center of the New Jerusalem. And as we come to verse 6, God is going to use three people. We have said he uses an angel, he uses John the disciple, and he makes Jesus, and he uses Jesus to make an appeal. And as we come now to verses 12 to 20, where we've been over the past two weeks, I said that verses 12 to 20 are all primarily Jesus speaking. And you start in verse 12, and Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And I said that verse 14 should be like a red letter, if you have a red letter edition, should be red letters. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. And here's where we're at. This is where we're come to now. Verse 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. This is the only time in the Bible where Jesus is like he's directly speaking to us. It's the only time you have I, Jesus. What you have here is a reference that Jesus is saying, listen to me. I want you to understand this is an appeal. This is something where I want you to grasp the reality that I'm trying to get you to see the finality of this. That, that when I tell you, verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons, is that you recognize that there is an outside, there is an inside. There are people that are going to be in heaven. There are going to be people that we understand are a place called judgment. The dogs are just a description for people that are just bad people, using an expression that could be just for unbelievers, but you, know, you just say, man, that person is a dog. They're just a lousy person. These would all be people that wouldn't have faith in Christ, wouldn't be born again, would never have placed any faith, Old Testament, New Testament, in, in God. And, and look at verse 15. They are sorcerers, people who deal with drugs or witchcraft. That word is broad enough to include both. It's people that are moral, people that are sexually immoral, 
people that are murderers. They kill people, idolaters. They place money, pride, glory, anything over God. And people who lie. These people, if this is your regular practice, you're in trouble. And the only way to escape judgment is to come to faith in Jesus Christ, to believe that he was God and man who came to earth to die to pay the penalty for your sins. When you believe it, it causes you to be born again. The Bible says unless you're born again, you don't go to heaven. The people that are outside of, of, of true belief are these people, and they're under judgment. Jesus, I believe, is showing his heart of love like a parent would try to make an appeal to a child and say, listen, I want you to pay attention. Parents, we all, Jason's prayer, I mean, Jason prayed and, and Carl wanted us to pray for children. We, we want so much for our children. Sometimes we just, it agonizes over us when we see children making bad decisions. And, and Jesus, I look and say, he's like the children of humanity, is like, please don't make a bad decision. He's, he's, he's played, I call it the, the God card. If you, and if you weren't with us last week, we went through, we went through verse 14. Oh, excuse me, it's not verse 14. Um, verse 13. I call it the God card. And I, what I mean by that is like, you know, sometimes you play a card game. You can play war or you can play like a poker game. And I'm not a big card player, but I know that it, it, there's always a timing when you play a certain card. You know, you can play things in a sequence and you play the right card at the right time. It's more powerful. It's more significant. Well, here we're coming to the end of the Bible and using that expression as playing the God card. That's what verse 13 is. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. These were tied to the Old Testament. These were tied to quotes regarding who God is. Now, he could have just said, I am God. But this is the genius of God. The way he uses scripture is that, that it's, it's a word picture that shows I am the beginning and the end. There's a finality to who I am. There's nobody that's going to come by and supersede anything that I say or do. I am the first and the last. Like if you get in line, I'm the first person in the line, I'm the last person in the line. There's no other God that is going to all of a sudden trump what I do. There is no one that's going to come and say, you know, he sent people to help. Guess what? I'm pulling them out. No. People get sent to hell. It's final. People get sent to heaven. It's final. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Please listen to me. And so look at, as it carries more weight, we go into verse 16. And Jesus is saying, I, Jesus. Again, nowhere in scripture does this appear. Jesus is like speaking directly to you. And he says, I've sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. We said that, well, we're going to do a study on angels in a couple weeks once we get done with this study of end times. But it's an interesting dynamic. I'm not going to go through all of it right now. But we know, interestingly enough, that God, through history, has used angels to communicate his message. It doesn't diminish the quality or the impact of the message because you know you a king sends a message a president sends a message it carries the weight if the ambassador goes and says this is what our king is saying it carries that weight so god has used angels throughout history old testament as well as new testament and it's interesting as we will work through some of the scriptures later to look at that dynamic but for now just pick up the idea that jesus has sent his messenger to testify these things to the churches 
because this letter went to the churches. Now, this is the first time since chapter 3 that the word church has been used. And this is fits, I believe, per perfectly with the idea of the church being taken out. The rapture has occurred. The tribulation, the church has gone, uh, been in heaven while the seal, trumpet, and bull judgments have occurred. So now we come back and you say, well, why in the world would God send this message to the church? Shouldn't this just be out there for the people that are going to go through the tribulation? Well, the reality of this is, is God has wanted mankind for the past 2,000 years to live in light of the end. And this is what he had to know. He had to know that it was going to be 2,000 years or more. I don't know how long it's going to be before Jesus Christ returns. But for the people in the first 500 years, the second 500 years, third, fourth 500 years of the church age, there's been a reality. If you've lived your life in light of this book, knowing that you're not to put your eggs in the world's basket, you're not to live for the material things of this world, you are to be blessed if you live in light of this. Remember I said there are seven blessings, beatitudes, in this book. Look at verse, um, what was it? Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. The idea of being people, make sure you're really, really saved. And as we have said throughout this book, like in verse 7, blessed are, is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. You're in a great position if you live your life for Jesus Christ. Ask anyone as they come closer to the end of their life, did you give too much to Jesus? Everyone says, no, I wish I could give more. So even though the tribulation hasn't occurred in most, of our, in most people's lives, right? I mean, in the most church, the church history, the past 2,000 years, the book has still had an impact. Now, as we come to verse 16, Jesus is saying, I have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. He's going to make a really significant point. Well, double point, really, two points. He's going to say, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What is this? Why is this so powerful? Because this gives us great insight as to Jesus saying, I am the one who is the star who's been sent to fix everything. And this, verse 16 is so compact with incredible deep theology that I'm going to do something that I've, I've never done here in 20-some years of being the pastor here. We're going to take a slideshow. We're going to do it this Sunday, and we're going to do it next Sunday. And I'm going to explain the theology of what it means that Jesus is the root and descendant of David. What, simply put, you have a root, you have like the stump, and Jesus is saying, I am the originator of David. In essence, I'm God, and this is where David, the king of Israel, has come from. But the idea of the fact that he's also the descendant of David, meaning he was a great, 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 great grandchild of David, is incredibly perplexing. And we'll take next week to look at that in Matthew 22 all the more. But you have to understand, this is at the heart of God's plan to fix everything. And, and if you don't understand this, then you probably get a skew also on the tribulation and the, the whole concept of the timelines and everything. The bright morning star was an expression tied to the Old Testament. It was tied into Numbers 24. I'm going to come back to the descendant part in a second. But I just want you to know, in Numbers 24, verse 17, and then it's referenced in Luke chapter 178, where Jesus is the fulfillment of this, is the bright morning star was the brightest 
in the galaxy. And it was indicative of just like we would say, that person's a star today. Jesus is saying, I am the star. It's the, I'm the answer that everyone's been looking for. Because God has used me to fix everything. So if someone can get the lights, I'm going to take you through this, this slideshow. I, instead of having you flip back and forth through a lot of verses, I thought, well, it might be really easy if I put them up on screen. So I, again, I don't typically do this, but I thought sometimes people get lost. Sometimes I hear that we go too fast. So I'm going to go a little slow and try to get you to understand this and then put the scriptures up here. So here we go. It's a big deal that Jesus is the root and offspring of David. And I used a lot of pictures because <laughs> people like pictures. This is a book. It's called The Art of Fixing Things. It's a, face, it's a famous book. This deals with the, the verse, not the book. <laughs> this deals with God's plan to fix Israel and to fix the world. All right? As we go through this slideshow, this is going to tell you the proof. Why God picked one nation, Israel, to fix the world. Why Israel has to be an eternal entity. Why Jesus is so important to this plan. Why Israel is punished in the tribulation before the final part of the plan is put into place. So remember those things. Now here's my other promise to you. At the end of next week, if you would like a copy of this slideshow, I'll give it to you, okay? So don't worry about trying to get everything down. But there are some passages you might want to, you might want to jot down. So here's the big picture. In the beginning, we know God creates the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1. God gives man dominion over the world, right? But mankind doesn't want God interfering with their lives, and this is sin, and mankind gets kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Interestingly enough, the passage we even studied last week, in there, and I don't know... That, <laughs> Okay, just a note, this is a cartoon. This isn't a real picture of Adam and Eve. <laughs> just so we have no idea who they were, what they were. We believe there's a literal tree of life because we studied that last week that we're going to partake of it. Why does God use things like this? Because God is tangible. We're not like floating on clouds. It's not just going to be a bunch of spirit things. There was a real literal tree, and God knew that if we ate from it, if we ate from it, we would be condemned in our sin for eternity. So he kicks mankind out. Then he sends the flood and everything is wiped out. We don't know where that tree is today. Where it is could be in the bottom of the ocean. I said last week, maybe that's part of the tie-in with the old historic um, story of the, of the lost city of Atlantis. We don't know. But mankind is kicked out. We know that, we know that there's an incredible flood that happens. Noah survives. But here's where this really kicks off, and a lot of people miss this. When you come by the time to Genesis chapter 10 and 11, there's a story of this man named Nimrod, and here's some ancient artifacts of depictions of him. And what this one man does is he decides to have a nation be risen up, and he brings everybody to a place when they're going to make this tower. It's called the Tower of Babel. In Genesis, we learn that Nimrod became a mighty tyrant in the face of Jehovah. There's books out there on the source of all false religion. And if you're unaware of this, it might like blow you away because when you're studying the book of Revelation and all of a sudden you come 
to the end of the Bible in Revelation 17 and 18, and it's talking about Babylon, and Babylon hasn't like really gotten a big play throughout the whole Bible. You say, why in the world is this getting the big play at the end? And God has allowed us to know that this was a big deal, that this has been like sort of the thing that's been running through all, all history, through all time, and, and now God is going to bring it to an end, and he's going to squash it. So what you need to know, Nimrod was a real person. And here's this ancient document. It doesn't come off real well in this slide, but this, was, this is an interesting. This is a stone with some ancient writings. And it was an inscription of a, of a uh, it's called the Naram Sin, and it was found at an ancient city called, I'm going to say it right, Marad. But bottom line is that it mentions Nimrod. And my point is that it's not, Looking at, we're not looking at Nimrod as if he was a mythological figure. He was a real person, and he really existed. And his whole goal was to build a one-world religion in a one nation, and they were going to be totally in opposition to God. They want nothing to do with God. And so he constructed this thing. The tower would be the center of the new nation, this is like a 17th, 18th century depiction of it. We don't know what it exactly looked like, but I want you to remember this for when you come back next week. <laughs> okay? What we do think the tower really looked like was this, and here's a reconstruction from a place where they have found some ruins of ancient towers, and they're called ziggurats. And so they were sort of like tiered structures. And so Nimrod would have built this, and they would have used it as a place of worship. So not this high-tower skyscraper. But God stops Nimrod in his plan. God scatters the people, hence God forms many nations. The people cannot communicate with one another, and the Lord scatters them all over the world. See, Genesis 11 is this is where the races originated. And we know, because we've done studies on this here, where all the pigment of skin color for every human being is in every individual. We're all from the same race. God, then, God did this to separate the people because what happens is race isn't to just bring division and hatred amongst one another. It was to bring division so people wouldn't unite so that they would have this worldwide religion against God. And, and, and so God separates them. And as a side note, if you're into linguistic studies, all the, all the basis of all different languages, the morphology and the structure of languages, I believe God creates, which is sometimes lost in the genius of God's creation. Because when you look at how verbs and nouns are constructed in different languages, it becomes incredibly ingenious. God did that when he created all the different languages. So everybody, this is a picture, everyone's scattered. They can't talk to one another. Now, here's like an 18th century painting. Again, this isn't Abraham, but what we know is God goes about fixing the world's sin problem. God picks one man out of the scattered people, the man we now know as Abraham. God chose one man, Abraham, in Genesis 12 to form a new nation. This nation eventually gets known by many names, but most notably Israel. You know, people today might call it Palestine. All right? When Abraham gets called... He's got his wife, and he's got a contingent of people with him. Abraham just doesn't come by himself. God tells Abraham to leave the land 
of Ur, you go back and you study um, Genesis 12, he's told this land here to leave to a land that we now know as Israel. I, I like this. I could have used the real map, um, but this, this, this has the ziggurat in it. That's not like a cake, <laughs> okay? Um, but the Tower of Babel, they think, was down here. Ur was over here. And so Abraham took the journey to come into this area here. Fun fact, side note, up until the 1950s, I believe, the land of Ur was never found. You can write, you can find people who hate Christianity, you can find books where they say, this land here doesn't exist, the Bible's all a myth, they found some archeological digs and they were able to prove that this is legitimate, this is a real place. All right, whoops. At this time, when God tells Abraham to leave, he makes a covenant with him. A covenant is just a contract. And I took this picture because I like, I like the way it pictures. The most contracts is it's an agreement made between you know, the, these people and these people, okay? That's how we think of most contracts. But God gave the Abrahamic covenant as an unconditional covenant. God promises Abraham in Genesis 12, one to three things, chapters 12, verses one to three, three things. And if you miss this, then you don't understand the end times, you don't understand the tribulation, and you don't understand eternity. You have to understand this is that significant. God promises land to him, seed, and blessing. The land is the land that we get no tie to Israel today. As you go on, it's gonna be repeated in the book of Genesis. This land is given forever. He tells them that there's this seed, he, he tells them he's gonna be given a nation. He gets a big family that turns into a nation as well as a seed. And that, again, remember that, that we know that the descendant is Jesus. And just, some of you may not be back next week. Galatians chapter three, we'll talk about the promise fulfilled, the seed and blessing. He gets many good things, including salvation for himself with Israel in the world. We are saved under this covenant. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, it's in either chapter 8, 9, or 10. I think it's chapter 8 of Hebrews that the only reason we're going to heaven is because of this contract. The church is added on to the Jewish contract, not that we get a brand new contract. We'll talk about the Jeremiah covenant more later, but this is the only slide without a picture. Okay, <laughs> staying with me. I just wanted to read the scripture to you. Verse one, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now, everything is where it's bolded, it's my emphasis. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you, i.e. your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. As the Bible progresses, God makes it clear that these blessings are eternal and come through the seed, Jesus Christ. Unconditional covenant means it only contains blessings. There are no curses in this. This is critical that you realize this. It will never be broken because God is the only one responsible. And I took this little picture and it's a contract. And the reason I use it, I'm gonna use it a couple more times, is the only person signing this is God. God ratified the covenant in Genesis 15. 
Genesis 15, God ratified it by himself, meaning he's the only signer to this contract. It, it, it isn't dependent upon how Abraham performs. Here's Genesis, excerpts from Genesis 15. God has told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Some 23, 24 years passes by from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15. Abraham's wondering, when am I ever going to have a child? And so God says, do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. He tells him his children will be like the stars of the sky. Abraham believes God, and it's reckoned to righteousness. That's Genesis 15. Oh, Lord God, Abraham says, how may I know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him, and he cut them in two. This was the way that people in this time cut a contract. You would take the two animals, an animal, and cut it in two, and then both parties would walk down between the two animals, and this would be a serious contract, and it would be like communicating whatever happened to these animals, if we don't fulfill this contract, will happen to one of us. So what happens is, it came about when the sun had set, it was very dark, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch would pass between these pieces. In this time period, Abraham falls asleep, and the only one that passes through is this torch. And it's believed that it was a sim symbolic of God being the one who was passing through. And so it says, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. To your descendants, I give this land from the river. Um, and then here's the description of it. Later on, again, it's going to be repeated. What is happening here? is God is setting up a contract, and this contract we're seeing is eternal. From Genesis chapter 21 on, Abraham's promised family starts with Isaac, and over time gets larger and larger as it develops into a nation. I was going to have all the kids sing, many sons had father Abraham, okay? Come on, okay. God's goal is to rule forever through the promise to Abraham. You always hear that line, king of kings and lord of lords. The whole thing is, the world was setting up their nation, their one nation. God says, forget you people. You're spread out, but I am not going to forget you where I don't care about you. What I'm going to do is set up one nation that's going to be a blessing to everyone, and it's going to be the nation that provides salvation. You thought you could follow Nimrod. You can't. You have to follow me. My nation is going to be the answer. So as time passes, we see more details to God's plan. God raises up David who's an important king of Israel. He's given a covenant promise. This too is an unconditional. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I know it's smaller, but I'll read it to you. God is speaking, to, um, speaking through a prophet to David. He says, Now therefore you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from fo following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel, and then I will make you a great, na a great name. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. For your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. You get the repeat? Forever, forever. 
Jesus fulfills the promise to David. Isaiah 11, then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots. Jesse is David's father, all right? And so here's this picture, okay? And there's two illustrations here. And, and you've got the idea of a stem, which could be a root, like a, a stump, and then a shoot coming out of it, or you could have roots and branches coming up. Both of them convey the same picture. But the idea is, is that, is that you have, you have Jesus, Jesus coming in the line of David. Jesus, throughout the New Testament, is called the son of David. One passage that I just picked up was Luke 18, 38. Son of David, son of David, they would recognize. Jesus was known as the son of David, which I often tell you, it's ironic. Sometimes people think Jesus is this poor person, poor family. The reality of it is his family was the kingly line. Jesus would have been king if nothing would have ever happened with Israel being punished. Jesus is God, come in the flesh. Hence, he is known as the son of man. The son of man is the Messiah. He's the answer that in the line of David. The Son of Man is a title that reveals the Messiah as someone human but also divine. And we look at Daniel chapter 7. This is a picture of end times. Daniel chapter 7 is a picture of where all eternity is going. That's the picture for infinity. In Daniel chapter 7, as the end of time comes, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, which would be God the Father. And he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and, and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. In his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He, okay? Forever, forever, not destroyed, not going away. Jesus is called the Son of Man over 80 times. He rules forever. Jesus is human and divine. He is the descendant of David while also being God. And here's a, I think it's an 18th century statue of David. Again, not being really David. I just thought, or 1600, and that I'd give you. But listen, this is from Isaiah 9. Many of you know this passage. For a child will be born to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom from then on and forevermore. The idea is, is that God says, look, I see that Nimrod wanted to rule the world, but he can't do it. I can't let him. I'm going to stop him. I'm going to stop his plan. I'm going to set up my own nation. But even them, we know Israel fails. And I'm going to set up one king. And I know that this king cannot be just a normal human being because mankind continues to fail. So I will come to earth as a human being and I will become that king. I will be the one that is the root of David, but also the stem or the branch of David. And so over and over and over, we see that Jesus, who's the, called the son of David, is, is described as both God and man. For example, in Matthew chapter one, we see Jesus born as a human in the virgin birth, but he's also called Emmanuel, God with us. So remember Revelation 22, Jesus is the root and offspring and of David. Root because Jesus is the God, the creator of all, all right? 
And then, but stem or branch, however, sometimes these words are used interchangeably, is because he is the human descendant of David. Now, why is this all significant? How does this all fit with end times? Is because today you have got to understand Israel is in a permanent entity, and the king of Israel is permanent. And what is so amazing, so stunning, is that I went to this one website, and I guess this is my second one without a picture. Sadly, most Christian-related churches today believe God is finished with Israel. These churches believe the church, i.e. the corporate church, has replaced Israel in God's plan. And then they don't deal with end times because they don't believe that that there's any future with Israel and well they some of them will deal with end times but they still will some will think Israel has no future and then others will not even teach as we said today Catholic Church for example um, some of the uh, in the Reformed Church believe that the book of Revelation has nothing to do with end times at all so again small print but this was a 19, 2004 listing of all the denominations in the united states the top 25 and what you basically have is it adds up to maybe 140 150 million people but what you have is all the bold listings are confirmed people or churches that do not believe that israel has a future we got just one more two more slides yet for jesus to rule forever israel has to have an eternal future so you got 300 million people in our country and you have 110 million people that claim to be Christians or some relation to Christianity and all, 110 people are saying Israel doesn't have a future. Yet I want to show you just two passages. Romans chapter 11 where the Apostle Paul is arguing this very fact and he says God has not rejected his people as he may it never be for I too am an Israelite. And then he goes, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be uh, wise in your own estimation. The being wise in your own estimation is by saying, I don't think Israel has a future. I think the church has replaced Israel. I think that all the promises that went to Israel now go to the church. And that's just not true. And it leads to a lot of bad theology. What he's saying is a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And then here's a line that you can jot this down now, but you go back and you start this in your Bible. This is one of the most important verses in all the Bible for so many things. Verse 30, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, meaning God doesn't go back on his word. When God makes a promise, he comes through. He comes through for you. And God is, if God said to David, you're going to have a descendant on the throne forever. If he said to, to Abraham, you're going to have the land forever. You're going to be a great nation forever. It's not till just the end of the, of the world as we know it. It goes on into eternity. And that's why this the, this last verse, and I won't go through the whole thing, is in Revelation chapter 21, a new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. And Revelation 21, which we, were, we started to describe, or I started to read earlier, the description of the new Jerusalem, it's a cube. That's what that is. You might not understand, but it fits two-thirds of the United States. But Jerusalem is described with the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Its gates will never be closed. When you're in eternity, Israel has a central focus point. How could anyone think that Israel doesn't have a future?
But before Israel and her king could rule the world, Jesus had to die for sin. And that's where we'll pick up with this next week. So you get the lights. And I just want you to understand, how does this all fit in? You see, when Jesus says, I, Jesus, am the root and the offspring of David, what he's, and the descendant of David, what he's trying to say is, I am the one who's come to fix everything. I'm the one that in God's big plan of redemption, I am the answer. You better focus on me. You better know about me. You better proclaim me. You better believe on me. And so, yeah, you, you can read that. You want a little thing. And I'm going to show you next week. This wasn't a small thing. If you didn't grasp this, you often were just totally missing God's plan. And so today I just tell you, please don't miss God's plan. Make sure you believe in Jesus. Make sure you understand where history is going. Today, Israel is back in the land. I can't wait to show you the slides next week. Israel is back in the land, and it's all part of the program of how end times are coming together. And I hope you'll be excited. But first, today, make sure that you know that you believe in Jesus. Are you born again? Because unless a man is born again, he doesn't go into the kingdom of God. Blessed are the ones who heed this. Blessed are the ones who change their life because of this. Blessed are the ones who realize this world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Blessed are the people who recognize the book of Revelation is there to say, listen, this is a genuine situation. This world is gonna be destroyed. And, and if you put your eggs in this basket, you will lose. It's good for us to keep this in before us all the time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everyone's patience today, for doing something different, the slideshow. I hope that it helps people begin to think about God's plan. Sometimes, yes, the 66 books of the Bible can be overwhelming. And it just, sometimes people get lost in it, God. I'm hoping that today there's a thought that we understand how ultimately you wanted to save humanity when humanity had its own plan for religion. And you set up one nation, a nation that eventually through Abraham gets called Israel. And God, help us to grasp our understanding of what Israel means, not only for today, but for eternity. And then uh, I pray, Lord, that many can come back next week and we can understand more of how Jesus fits in. But we know that at the heart of it is that Jesus dies to pay the penalty for sin and he earns the right to become the king. And may he be everyone's Lord today. In Jesus' name, amen.